Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology. We're looking at the doctrine of sin. And so far in the first two lessons, we have taken more of a broader look at the doctrine in order to emphasize how this doctrine relates to what we have previously looked at. Well, today we're going to zoom in, so to speak, and look specifically at Adam and Eve's fall there in the Garden of Eden. Here we see where sin enters our world. We see the nature of temptation and of sin. And then we will see the effects, which we won't really be able to get to in this lesson, but we'll eventually go on to talk about the effects sin has on us. In Genesis chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the garden, of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now let's kind of think about what's going on here. As we noted last Lord's Day, God had entered into this covenantal arrangement with Adam and Eve, and it was by that arrangement that God condescends down to man in order to reveal himself. And he does this in order that man would have any blessedness and reward of a relationship with their creator. And keep in mind here, the garden was not just some regular old garden, right? It wasn't as if God just threw Adam, some ordinary guy, into an ordinary garden so that he can just grow carrots and broccoli or something. This garden was actually the first temple we see in the history of mankind. The garden was actually a small section from the land of Eden, where Adam would go and meet with God in the Holy of Holies. 
there God, who we've already looked at in our doctrine of God study. We know he's omnipresent, but here he would manifest himself in a very special way to man so that Genesis 3 can talk about his quote-unquote presence there in the garden. And Adam was no ordinary man. He was the first prophet, priest, and king. Adam was created as an image bearer, as one who would reflect the glory, righteousness, and holiness of God on earth as his representative. And he would rule as God's vice regent, having dominion over the earth and all the creatures. And having the law of God written on his heart, he would meet with God to be instructed in his word. And he was given the task to work and keep the garden, the temple. And so part of his job in working and keeping the temple was to guard it. And that included keeping any unclean creatures out of it, including serpents. And then man was given this cultural or spiritual mandate to be fruitful and multiply. What is that about? It's about reproducing other image bearers who in turn would produce more image bearers. And generation after generation being raised in the covenant, they would spread out and fill the earth, spread the garden, spread the temple so that the whole earth would be full of God's glory and presence. This was a very special and exalted position of man in the beginning. You know, I think sometimes we read this story as if it was just a little children's story. And I mean, they get those pictures of those children's books. We, ordinary man and woman thrown in an ordinary God garden, just minding their business, you know, growing carrots. And then this snake, talking snake, comes in and starts messing with them. No, this is a story of a vice regent, a king, a ruler and representative of God on earth who was tasked along with his helpmate to fill the earth with the glory of God. It was an awesome task. It was an awesome responsibility. Listen to Psalm 8. When I looked at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this isn't some cute little children's story. Adam, along with his helpmate, were to rule and to subdue the creation as image bearers, to spread the glory of God throughout the earth. I'm emphasizing this because I want you to see the height from which they fell. The seriousness of what happened here. But they were to do all this on God's terms, not theirs. And thus, you have this covenantal arrangement that God makes with them. This covenant of life would dictate the terms of how man would rule and govern as image bearers. It wasn't up to man to decide how that would work. How would he know? It wasn't up to man to decide how best to reflect the glory of God. Adam was but a vice regent. He was not the sovereign. And so God set the terms. And thus he gave them not only the moral law, but a positive law. In Genesis 2, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
I want you to listen to the words of Ezekiel 28. There, there's a word that comes to the prophet against the king of Tyre for his pride and arrogance. So he's rebuking a specific person, king of Tyre, but in, notice how he describes the king in this rebuke. He likens him to Adam in the garden. So this gives us a little insight as to the very special and exalted place and position that God put Adam in. In Ezekiel 28, it says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And it goes on, On that day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And in the abundance of your trade, now this is where it's focused specifically on the king of Tyre, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. But then it goes on to say, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian chair, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So again here, we see this language. Adam was highly exalted and put in this very special place in the beginning with great responsibility and a great task that he was given. But he was to do this on God's terms in his alone. And this is where Satan, this is the point of his attack. Genesis says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Now let's stop right there. Now I don't know about you, but in light of what we just said, one of the first questions that ought to pop in your head is, well, where's Adam? And why is this unclean creature in the temple? What is he doing here? Adam's supposed to be guarding the temple and protecting his wife. This little exchange between Eve and the servant should have never have taken place. So we see here from the very beginning, man getting sidetracked and occupied with everything else but what he's supposed to be doing. But then notice Satan's point of attack. Did God actually say? His point of attack was against the authority of God as expressed by the word of God. Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, you... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for, notice she's, she's forgotten the word of God and now she's, she's going off of her experience, her feelings, her sensations. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And notice, Adam was there the whole time, and he's not doing his job. G.K. Bill writes, recall that after God put Adam in the garden for serving and guarding. He gave Adam a threefold statement to remember by which he would help 
by which would help to serve and guard the garden temple. God said, from any tree of the garden, one, you may eat freely, but two, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And then three, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When confronted by the satanic serpent, Eve either failed to remember God's word accurately or changed it intentionally for her own purposes. First, she minimized their privileges by saying merely, we may eat, whereas God said, you may eat freely. Second, Eve minimized the judgment by saying, lest you die, whereas God said, you will surely die. And third, she maximized the prohibition by affirming, you shall not touch it, becoming the first legalist in history, whereas God originally said only, you shall not eat. If Adam did remember God's word, then he did not trust it, since he did not come to Eve's aid when she failed to recollect the word rightly in the face of the serpent's accusations. Adam and Eve did not remember God's word adequately, and they fell. When the defense of God's word is taken away, all kinds of satanic lies come to fill the void, and the desire to resist temptation breaks down, and sin inevitably occurs." End quote. Beloved, there's only one thing you take away from this lesson today. Let it be that. Let me repeat that. When the defense of God's word is taken away, all kinds of satanic lies come to fill the void. The desire to resist temptation breaks down and sin inevitably occurs. Here we get to the heart of sin. A forgetfulness and a distrust of the word of God. What is sin? Our larger catechism asks. It says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. And it was exactly at that point where Satan attacked. It is exactly at that point where you will be attacked. Beloved, how in the world, in light of this story, could anyone think that a personal relationship with Christ could grow and flourish or even exist to begin with apart from knowing, studying, remembering, and keeping God's word? It's impossible. In fact, if you have that mindset that you think you can just grow your relationship with God apart from doctrine, apart from his word, that reveals you've already been deceived by the serpent. You've already begun to be deceived. This is the point of attack with our first parents. If you do not cherish the word, if you're not studying it, if you're not reading it, if you're not keeping it, then there's only one other route for you to go, and that is falsehood, lies, deception, rebellion, and then finally, judgment. Again, Bill writes, the patterns of sinful behavior and the primal tribulation should be helpful as warnings for us not to repeat the same thing. What was the sinful conduct in Eden that is beneficial for the church today to contemplate? To observe Satan's first deception and the response to it can contribute understanding about the nature of the present and future eschatological deception. And so he goes over what it is we see in this story. One, that Satan deceived Adam and Eve into breaking their covenant relationship with God. And then two, part of 
Satan's deceptive method was to tell Eve that if she did what the serpent said, that she would know in a much deeper way than before and be much more enlightened than the means by which God provided for them. How often do you hear that? How often do you hear attacks against the word, how primitive and stupid it is? If you just come our way, science and all this other mess, you'll be more enlightened. Third, Satan deceived them about their own marriage relationship so that they not function as help meets, to help meet each other's need to defend against the devil's attack. One, that, one way this occurred was that they did not help each other remember God's word that Satan was opposing. Fourth, Satan deceived them about the lethal danger that he posed. He was able to bring them into dialogue with himself without them realizing just how dangerous such a casual conversation like this could be. Boy, there's a lesson there. These casual conversations we have speculating about things. Did God really say? Fifth, God, uh, Satan contradicted God's word explicitly in Genesis 2.17, denying the reality of God's coming judgment and saying, you will surely not die. And sixth, Satan made evil seem good. In particular, he passed himself off as a being who posed no danger, and he made sinful disobedience to God's word appear as a good course of action. He also portrayed God as being motivated by jealousy and commanding them not to eat of the tree, Genesis 3.5. And lastly, Eve was deceived because she did not know God's word sufficiently and did not esteem it highly enough. But in contrast, look at the contrast when we get to the Gospels. Jesus Christ, who knew the word, and by obeying it, established himself as God's last true Adam and true Israel. If you recall when he was tempted there in the wilderness in Matthew 4 by the devil. Again, this is going back to the garden. Satan's at it again with the new Adam. With each temptation, Jesus responded to Satan by quoting from the Old Testament. From passages in Deuteronomy where Moses rebuked Israel for failing in its task. So in contrast to Adam and Eve, Jesus overcame the temptations by knowing and trusting in God's word. These temptations also reflected those that Adam endured, which is apparent in Luke's ending, his genealogy, uh, genealogy of Jesus, by calling him the son of Adam, the son of God, which is followed by a uh, temptation narrative, just as we have here in Genesis. Thus, the gospel is portraying Jesus as an Adam figure undergoing temptation, the same temptations. The temptations of food, Genesis 3, 6, compared with Luke 4, 3. And self-aggrandizement, uh, 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 Genesis 3, 6, compared to Luke 4, 5 through 7. And Jesus succeeded against exactly those temptations in which Adam failed because he remembered God's word and obeyed it. And so the heart of the matter is this, as I close. Do you know God's word? Do you believe it? Do you cherish it? Do you do it? Is it the center of your life? 
Because if it's not, then the lies of the evil one are going to slip into your life ever so subtly. And when this happens, and that process goes on and on, unchecked, uncorrected, then deception is going to creep in your life and bring destruction to it. So I ask you, is the word the center of your life? There is no other path. There's no other way than that other than the path of deception and destruction. 